0: We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9 this evening, so you can go ahead and flip there. When I was in college, I had a very bad habit. The bad habit I had in college, among many, was that I would let good food go bad. Here's what I mean. I would work my part-time college job, whether it was as a dishwasher in a restaurant or uh, working at Capel Rugs in downtown Blowing Rock. Whatever it was, I would work my part-time job, I would get a little money, and then occasionally there would be weeks, months, where I would get a little extra. And so rather than buying the, the regular staples to my very limited diet that I need to survive, I would kind of go all in and buy like high-dollar co- high college-level goods. And so, you know, I might get some fresh fruit, some fresh veggies, maybe like a good steak, some name brand sweets, like I would trade in Numenos for Oreos, because let's be honest, Numenos ain't where it's at. Um, maybe I'll buy a whole gallon of milk. But inevitably, on especially the fresher stuff that I would buy fruits and veggies, I would buy it and I would think, man, like I, I'm going to wait because I don't know when this will happen again. So I'm going to wait for the perfect time to enjoy this food. And then almost without fail, the food would go bad before I found the perfect time to eat it. And so I would hold a very solemn vigil at my trash can for this very good food with all this potential. uh, I would shed a single tear and throw my food away and vow that the next time I would not do it again. And then the next time I would do it again. And so I threw away a lot of good food in college because I just couldn't find the right time to enjoy it. And I think if we're honest, That's a lot of our struggle with how we integrate into our daily life what we learn about the gospel and its implications for how we are to live. Meaning we hear something in a sermon, we read something in the text in our quiet time, and and the Spirit stirs in us an understanding of what obedience should then look like. And we wait for the perfect opportunity to be obedient. We wait for those moments where we think the sky is going to open, like heavenly light is going to pour down, there's going to be a rainbow from horizon to horizon, doves are just going to appear out of nowhere and flutter off, uh, and, and then we're going to know like, oh, so this is when I should be forgiving. Oh, so this is what it means to be patient. Like I've never had that experience when the Lord is asking me to be obedient and patient. There's, there's rarely heavenly light, there may be hell's flames, but there is rarely heavenly light when it's patience we're after and much like me going to the trash can and a solemn reminder of good food gone bad we don't go to the trash can necessarily but i think what happens if we keep waiting for the opportune time and we keep missing opportunities that the lord puts in front of us we get five years down the road we get 10 years down the road we get maybe to the end of our life And we look back and all we see are missed opportunities and wasted potential. And so Paul writes to the Philippians tonight to encourage them and I believe also to encourage us that they're not to delay in putting into practice the very things he has written to them about in the previous chapters. This isn't read this, take five or six weeks to begin to try to understand it and then just start somewhere. Paul, before they get done reading the letter, gives them very specific instructions on how to begin to live in light of the gospel. Or as he says earlier in Philippians, how to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. I believe this quote from Jed Coppinger captures this well. Jed Coppinger said, Grace does not remove works from your life. Grace removes self-righteousness from your life. And that's what Paul's after. Grace has not removed works from your life, but grace has removed self-righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that grace has taken our self-righteousness. Because for us, self-righteousness is an oxymoron. We need another's righteousness. We need Christ's righteousness. And so we're grateful for that. We're grateful to have a righteousness not our own. But having a righteousness not our own does not free us from the responsibility of the works that are our own. So, Father, as we consider Paul's words in Philippians tonight, as we consider the implications for all that we've studied and learned over the past weeks in Philippians, would you begin to make it clear to us those opportunities, those moments where we, too, can be faithful. It may not be perfect. It may not go exactly how we thought. We may end up having to repent of our attempts at obedience both to you and to others. But it doesn't mean that we're to delay obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So help us, Father, by your spirit and by your word and by the encouragement and counsel of other believers to be obedient now. And do the good works that you've set aside for us to do. In Christ's name, amen. Paul says in two and three, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. And I know that's right because today I sat on my couch and listened to 50 pronunciations of those names. I'll say them a few more times, but I promise you they didn't have like a southern English version. Like, can I get a redneck dialect of how to pronounce these Greek names? But I promise that's good enough. He says, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche, and that's going to get worse as the night goes on, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. If we're honest, these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, are two names that more than likely would be lost to the dustbin of history if Paul does not call them to unity at the end of Philippians. Maybe they're like at the end of Romans 16 or some of Paul's other letters where they're maybe mentioned once or twice, but there's no real weight to what Paul says to them. But here, Paul calls them to unity in the Lord, and as such, we now know at least a little bit about them. And we know a little bit about them based off of what Paul says After asking them to agree in the Lord, I think it's key for us to remember if we're going to put Philippians four, two and three in the proper context. You need to remember you need to maybe have your mind refreshed. These two women are not two bad apples in an otherwise healthy and thriving congregation. The way Paul goes on to describe them, Paul doesn't even view them as enemies who need to be pushed out of the church. He views them as fellow workers who need to be reconciled to each other. They are not in some uh, passive-aggressive Facebook or Twitter war with each other where there's this personal animosity that leads to constant backbiting and these nasty put-downs that were meant to raise the profile of one while discounting or marginalizing the other. No, this means of division was between two women who were high-profile decision-makers in the local Philippian church. Their biggest issue was they just had personality disagreements. There was no sin. There was no sense, There was no sin yet. And Paul is writing to try to stop the sin before it can happen, this preventative grace on display. But they're not in a situation where sin has happened, but they're getting very close. They're beginning to draw lines around what started as interpersonal conflict is now threatening to wedge its way into the church and cause division in the only church in Philippi. Paul knows this cannot happen. There has to be a push from both of them back towards unity. And here is the reality. It doesn't matter how minor the interpersonal conflict or the personality conflict is between us as believers if it's not dealt with and not recognized for what it is, and there's not an agreement in the Lord, eventually what starts as a minor disagreement between two people, like a small spark in a dry forest, can consume hundreds, maybe even multiple hundreds of people in an out-of-control fire that could have been handled if two people could have sat down and agreed in the Lord. And so Paul asks, them to agree in the lord because this threatened the health and the vitality of the church at philippi but notice how paul goes on to describe these women well two things first he says i ask you also true companion we have no idea who the true companion is it may have been epaphroditus who is carrying the letter back it may have been the elder that epaphroditus knew to deliver the letter to for it to be read to the congregation Doesn't matter, but what Paul does, because this has reached the point that Paul has to mention them in the letter, he doesn't leave them to themselves to fix the mess they've got into. He asks for a third party, an arbitrator, to come between them to help bring them back to agreeing in the Lord. What had happened in this particular instance, what threatened the unity of the church, was everything that was peripheral to the gospel had moved into the center point of their lives. And they were beginning to define what faithfulness, what loyalty, what honesty looked like in regards to if people agreed with their personality or not, not on if they agreed on the central tenets of the gospel. Paul says, agree in the Lord, but I'm not going to leave you to yourself. The church has to be involved in this. Paul wants them to realize it's not only the working out of the good aspects of your salvation that must be done in community. It's also the working out of reconciling and confessing and dealing with sin that has to be done in community. So Paul says, go on and help them. My true companion. He says they have meaning these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul points, Yodia and Syntyche points to them as women who have labored side by side with him in the gospel and whose names are written in the book of life. He is cluing the rest of the listeners of the letter into the reality that they are to be treated as sisters in need of restoration, not enemies in need of exile. And if we're really honest, we get this wrong all the time. The minute we will tolerate false teaching a whole lot longer than we will tolerate someone clashing with our personality. We, get, we treat personality differences as means for dropping the hatchet on other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We will tolerate being led astray longer than we will tolerate having our personality questioned or challenged. Paul says, this is not how they're to be treated, they're to be treated as your sisters. They're important decision makers in the life of this church. They've labored beside me, and there's nothing that Paul can think of in what he's been told that would cause him to question their names being written in the book of life. Paul has full confidence in their standing as believers. They're just believers who need to be corrected. They're not enemies who need to be crushed. In other words, what Paul is saying as this letter is being read, and we get to this point, as it The Philippian believers here, they're hearing Paul say, in essence, if you've understood any and everything that I've been saying up until now, then now is the time to begin working toward being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Now is the time to work towards doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. It's time to work towards looking not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And it is imperative that this be modeled to the Philippian church by those with decision-making power in the congregation. Paul takes the issue of disunity and he lays it at the feet of the decision-makers and he says, it's up to you what you're going to do with what I'm telling you is what the Christian life should look like. Paul has given them everything that they need to resolve this issue. The question is, in humility, can these two women get past themselves to work towards being reconciled? That's hard work. But it's worthwhile work. It's necessary work. Because I believe if we think about it, we reason this out in our own minds, we begin to think, well, couldn't Paul have just ignored this issue? I mean, it hadn't risen to the level of being sinful yet, so let's just wait a while and see how it plays out. I mean, after all, Paul is in prison in Rome. Philippi is a Roman colony. There were tons of societal sins out there to be addressed. And if we're honest, I think this is where we often go first is we often go outside the church and we begin to yell and scream and raise our fist in protest and in denouncing the sin that is outside of the church. We think if we can be loud enough, it will help serve as a righteous distraction to keep us from having to deal with our own internal discord and sin issues. We think if we can just yell louder about elections, we think if we can just yell louder about societal and systemic sins that are all around us if we can always be pointing about pointing out what's wrong out there then we can shield ourselves from having to deal with what's wrong in here but Paul doesn't take that track Paul says deal with it internally I don't care necessarily what's happening outside the church because your message is going to be weightless until you apply the gospel first to yourselves We have to be aware that there are external threats and there is a need for the gospel out there, but it cannot blind us to the need of the gospel in here to deal with our own internal threats and sin issues that inevitably arise as sinners get together week in and week out to celebrate the gospel. Now, Paul had written to the Corinthians that as those in Christ, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18, and this is the message translation because I like how it captures it. At the end of 18, this is what it says. The old life is gone, a new life burgeons. Look at it. All this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. How, can, how we handle internal conflict goes a long way towards determining the health and vitality not only of the local church, but of the witness of the universal church. And if you don't believe me, find people who are coming into a church for the first time and ask them why they're looking for a new church. And I can guarantee you almost 70 to 80 percent of the time it's because of discord and sin issues at another church that weren't handled. So this is something we have to work at. We have a God who has settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. Therefore, we must be willing to do the hard work of reconciliation inside the church as uncomfortable and messy and painful as it may be at times so that when we take the message of God reconciling the world to himself in Christ out there through good works and evangelism, the church has integrity as it it concerns the gospel message it proclaims. Our unwillingness Our stubbornness about applying the gospel internally first makes it that much easier for those out there to reject the very truth that they need so desperately in their life. There has to be an integrity in the life of a church about how they respond to sin internally so that when they speak to truth externally, the same rules, the same grace, the same forgiveness, the same work applies across the board. We have to fight the temptation, whether it be inside or outside, in this particular instance, to not fall prey to the parental rhetoric of do what I say and not what I do. They say that's parenting no-no one. Don't look at your kid and say, do what I say, not what I do. And so it is for us as the church. We cannot look out at the world. We cannot look out at our co-workers and our neighbors and our friends and family who need the gospel and say, do as I say, not as I do. Because they won't. They'll do nothing. And they'll reject the very hope that they need. So Paul is pleading for there to be an integrity of heart and mind and application of the gospel that gives weight to, to when the Philippians walk out the door and share the gospel message with the community and the neighbors and the family that they live around. And he goes on and says this in 4 through 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You've got to imagine the Philippians get to this point in the letter. Paul reads, Paul has read to them that he's aware of the disunity and the issues that they're facing. And maybe some in the Philippian congregation simply threw up their hands. They've been fighting this internal struggle this whole time that they don't have what it takes to maintain their Christian faith and their Christian witness. They don't have what it takes to be a vital, healthy church in Philippi. Paul points out after all this time of building them up and encouraging them, he goes, oh, and tell these two that I'm not unaware of what's happening and they need to resolve it. So maybe the Philippian believers just go, you know what, let's just be done with it. This is too hard. Let's just all go our own way. If you want to start your own small group somewhere, you can. But let's just, let's just not keep doing this, because this is, this is a little more than we're ready for. But Paul, Paul pastorally anticipates that that would be their response. And that is why he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul immediately redirects their focus to rejoicing in the Lord. He immediately takes what was a prime moment for them to turn all of their attention inward, and he directs their attention back upward, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. When? When you've got disunity issues in your church. Rejoice in the Lord. When do you rejoice in the Lord? When things are going well. When do you rejoice in the Lord? When things are going bad. When do you not rejoice in the Lord? Never. You always rejoice in the Lord. Paul, though, is not asking them to gloss over or ignore the seriousness of the issues they are facing. He's not asking them to pretend like there's not a real problems and threats around them. But this is what the ESV study Bible says it regards this rejoicing. The joy that Paul calls for is a deep contentment that is in the Lord based on trust in the sovereign living God and therefore is available always, even in difficult times. Paul wants the Philippians to pause themselves, if but for a moment, to shut off the negative feedback loop that's running in their minds of all the ways that they've blown it, of all the ways that they've not met Paul's expectations or their own expectations. He wants them to pause, if but for a moment, and fight for the opportunity and reminder of what it is like to rejoice in the Lord. Because if they can, if they can bring themselves even in the midst of their awareness of how far off they are from where they should be, then they will find hope to keep putting one foot in front of the other as they seek to faithfully live for Christ. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Christian faith isn't about you, Philippians. How you respond to it matters, but it's not about you. The worth of Jesus, the worth of the God who has saved you, is not based off of how you're doing on any particular day. It's based off of who he is and what he's done. So would you just give yourselves a moment to rejoice in the Lord? And maybe that's where you are tonight. Maybe you just need to pause for a moment. Stop the hypercriticism of yourself. Stop reminding yourself of every way that you're tangibly aware that you're blowing it as a believer. And give yourself the permission, like Paul would tell you, to rejoice in the Lord. The Lord, to remind yourself that you are trusting in a sovereign father who is taking lavish care of you. And he died for you when you were a sinner. He didn't die for you when you were righteous. So take some time to stop yourself and give yourself over to rejoicing in the Lord. And maybe, just maybe, you'll find hope and strength to step forward later tonight or tomorrow in faithfully living for Christ. Not only that, but rejoicing restores the Philippians to trusting in the sovereign and living God, and this reorientation of life causes selfish ambition and vain conceit, the twin sisters of disunity, to be repented of and put to death, not only in their personal lives, but corporately in the life of the church. And this paves the way for reasonableness, to bloom in the Philippian church. And why does Paul want them to be reasonable? Well, nobody likes unreasonable people, right? You're like, yeah, well, I don't like unreasonable people, so please, by all means, be reasonable. But Paul's after something much, much different. He doesn't just want them to be not unreasonable and be reasonable. This is what the ESV Study Bible says. Reasonableness is crucial for maintaining community. It is the disposition that seeks what is best for everyone and not just for oneself. Reasonableness, according to Paul, then, is the expected temperament of those who are rejoicing in the Lord always. There's a reason they're side by side because if you're rejoicing in the Lord, you should be reasonable. Not unreasonable, not selfish. Not looking, only for, not looking out only for your own interest. And so how do we fit a biblical, uh, bi- biblical reasonableness and joy together? Moises Silva in his commentary says this. Genuine Christian joy is not inward looking. It is not by concentrating on our need for happiness, but on the needs of others that we learn to rejoice Paul expects believers to be guided by a frame of mind that does not put priority on personal rights. Paul says, your rejoicing will wear out and grow stale if your rejoicing is only an inward focus. Your rejoicing grows in vitality and grows in hope and grows in strength for yourself when you begin to turn your eyes out and begin to figure out how to rejoice in helping others with their needs. And so Paul says, don't don't do this to yourself. Don't become so inward focused because I'm pointing out an issue to you that you lose all sight of reasonableness and joy. Let your rejoicing lead you to be reasonable, and let your reasonableness make you more joyful. They go together together. And it got me to wondering, maybe this is just for me, but you can think about this with one of two questions. Could it, we, could it be that we, like the Philippians, aren't very good at rejoicing because we aren't very reasonable? Now we have a long list of everything we need to be happy and content before we will dare turn our eyes to our brother or sister and see how we can help them meet their needs? Could it be that we're just really bad at rejoicing always because the main thing we're thinking about is our own happiness? Or could it be that we struggle to be reasonable because we don't rejoice very well? That we never slow down to remind ourselves who's actually in control of our life. Maybe, just maybe, part of the reason why we have such a characteristic lack of joy in our life is because we are trying to marry biblical Christian reasonableness with our own self-obsession in an unholy union that only stands in the end to rob us of both joy and unity. Paul says you can't have it both ways. You can rejoice and be reasonable, or you can be unreasonable and unrejoicing. But you cannot rejoice and be unreasonable. And you can't be reasonable and not rejoice. I think if you take all that together, then I think it would be fair for the Philippians to think and for us to ask, what do we do with our worries and our fears and our needs and our anxieties? If we're to be rejoicing always and reminding ourselves of the sovereign love our Father has for us, and if we're to be reasonable, maintaining community by looking out for the needs of others, then what do we do when we feel these worries and needs and fears and anxieties? Because Paul doesn't seem to say that rejoicing always and being reasonable will serve as insulation to keep the Philippian Christians from experiencing these things. He doesn't say rejoice, be reasonable, and then all your anxieties will go away. Paul does say, though, that when these anxieties come up, they to be taken straight to God, who is near, who is at hand, in thankful prayer. Why does Paul say these prayers surrounding our anxieties should be made with thankfulness? Because here's the truth of the matter that Paul knew and we know, and we've seen it over and over again in our life. When we offer our prayers in thanksgiving, As an overflow of our rejoicing, we are reminded of all that God has already done on our behalf. When anxiety filled prayers are prayed with thanksgiving, we give ourselves permission not to ask where God is in this particular moment, but we give ourselves permission to remember where God has been all along. That is a powerful antidote to the anxieties of life. Our sovereign Father hasn't felt us and will not fill us. Thanksgiving causes the recognition of what God has done and is doing and has promised to do on our behalf in Christ to dawn in our hearts. And we begin to find a peace beyond our ability to comprehend or even describe guarding us If you've ever dealt with anxieties in life and you followed Paul's prescription for taking those to the Lord in thankful prayer you could probably stand up where you are and testify to the reality that in taking those anxious thoughts to the Lord in thankful prayer you begin to experience peace before you ever got to the point that you were actually praying about what was causing the anxiety. Doesn't mean the anxiety is any less real. It just helps relocate it to its proper place. It puts anxiety under the rule and care of our father. It does not leave our father in a position where he has to answer to our anxieties. And praise God for that. What does this peace guard us from? Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Here's the reality of what this piece guards us from. It guards us from the age-old lie of the enemy in the garden that God is holding out on us and he doesn't really love us. For this, if we're honest, is the root of almost all of our anxiety. That we feel like in a moment God is holding out on us or God doesn't really love us. And I'm talking about anxiety. I'm not talking. Let me be. Let me take a step back and make a very clear pronouncement. I am not talking about the mental health issue of anxiety. Paul is writing with Jesus's teaching in Matthew six in mind. Do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear or what you'll do for housing. I'll take care of all those things. This is the anxiety that Paul is writing in reference to. Do not hear this as me saying, if you suffer from anxiety, if you'll just pray with, mo- look, I will punch somebody who says that. I'm not, don't misunderstand me, and I know that that can sound that way. Let me uh, say that again. Paul is not dealing with mental health issues surrounding anxiety that are a result of the fall and need to be treated by trained medical professionals and medicine. He is talking about the anxieties, about the secondary things in our life that we are prone to wonder about. Those are the things we take to God in prayer. Those are the things that when we begin to think thankful thoughts about all that God has provided with our clothes and with our homes and with our health and with our food and with our family, every other anxiety about those temporary needs fades into worship of God for all that he has done. But if, if, if it is a matter of mental health anxiety, go get help. God in his grace gave us wonderful doctors and wonderful caretakers and wonderful medicine that helps with those things. And I belabor this point because I struggle with anxiety that's not surrounding this stuff. Some of you in here struggle with anxiety around things that are not related to what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or where you're going to live. Now for a funny story, my senior year of high school we went to register our cars for parking and then me and a group of guys went to play golf at a local golf course. I was the last guy to sign in and not paying attention didn't realize that every guy ahead of me had signed in under wrong names and wrong phone numbers. So I signed my name and my actual phone number where you could reach me which then was a house phone because cell phones were expensive and nobody had them. We go out and play golf. I will spare you all the details of what happened on the golf course, but needless to say, we were asked to leave, and that must have been the plan from the word go. So when we were asked to vacate the premises of the golf course, one of my friends took a golf cart key with him. I didn't know this. On the way home from the back of the truck, he takes it upon himself to chuck said golf cart key about 150 yards into the woods. Not that far. You can't throw a key that far. 150 feet, let's say. So I get home. I'm unaware that all this has happened, honestly. I'm not lying. And all of a sudden, the phone rings, and the guy who's in charge of the golf course is calling my house, wanting to know where the cart key is. I kind of knew, but I didn't really know, and so I told him what had happened. I said, I don't know what other guys wrote down. I said, but I can tell you that this is what I'm pretty sure happened. I want to say, and my mom is here, and after service, she's she going to come into this in a minute. She can verify at the end. I want to say he had threatened to, like, take us to court over, like, a $10 golf cart key. I don't know. It was crazy. Anyway, so I said, look, I'll bring the money tomorrow. Like, I, I just want to graduate high school without a record. Like, just let, and over a golf cart key of all things. <laughs> and so the next, that was Friday. On Saturday, he called back to our house. And I didn't get to the phone. My mom answered it having just woken up. And I will, again, I will spare you all the details. But at one point, this guy told my mom that she didn't really know how to parent. And my mom asked him how many kids he had, and he said none. And the phone conversation ended not long thereafter. <laughs> Here's the reality. Was he right to be upset? Yes. Yes. Was he right to demand that restitution be made for the key? Absolutely. Were we jerks and 18-year-old arrogant kids running around? Absolutely. But This is where he messed up. He began to tell my mom how to do something he had no experience being. And this is where anxiety about these things trips us up. Anxiety becomes sinful when we use it as a point to stand up and lecture God on how to be God. That's what Paul wants them to guard against. That's when you forfeit peace. That's when you forfeit having your mind and your heart guarded. That's when you open yourself up to be, in essence, have the same disposition that Satan had that got him kicked out of heaven. We have to guard ourselves to not let anxiety about these secondary things give us such false confidence in our ability to be God that we would stand up to God and say, no, 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 this is how you do it. Every time we do, we forfeit the peace that God promises. And then lastly, Paul says this in 4, 8 and 9. by holding up the Christian moral life like like a diamond in the hand of an expert jeweler. And he just turns it over and over again, revealing the many facets that characterize faithful Christian thought and conduct. What we want to do, what we want to know is what each little word in there means so we can figure out how we measure up. I'm not going to tell you those things tonight. W.H.A. Myers says, Each virtue represents the Christian moral character generally, So that in reality, the same thing is described, but according to the various aspects which commend it. And so much like you can't take an a la carte view of the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5, so you cannot here divide the Christian moral character up to fit your own liking. You can't say, oh, well, I like truth, and I like honorable things, and just as good, pure, maybe, depending uh, lovely, yeah, you know, um, commendable. Mm, some things I don't want to be very commendable because I want to be culturally relevant. Excellence, yeah, maybe. Worthy of praise. I don't, I don't even know what that means, Paul. You don't get a chance to divide this thing out and go, well, I'm good at these and not good at these. You get a chance to read and to see Paul advocating for the fullness of what Christian moral character looks like. And what does it look like? It looks like our thought life. Before you ever have Christian moral character on display with your mouth or with your actions, you have Christian moral character being formed in the things you think about. The only way I can really know the truth of your character is by watching how you talk and how you live. But it all has started with the things that you're allowing yourself to think about. We would think, Paul, would say, if you want to know the Christian moral character and virtue, go look at what people are doing. Paul says, no, 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 no. Before you ever get to the action, you've got to understand the thought life. The Philippians, according to the ESV study Bible, were to fill their minds with things that would inspire worship of God and service to others. They They were to fill their minds with thoughts that would help them fulfill the law of Christ to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what you fill your mind with. If you ever want to get to the fulfillment of Christ's law, you better begin to fill your mind with the things that would compel you to want to be obedient to Christ's law. You don't reverse engineer this and think your actions will change your mind. You allow your mind to influence your actions. And this is, again... Look, this is a lot of just things we get wrong currently in the church because here's what we do. We sit down and we confess the very simple actions we commit, but we never go back far enough to ask each other the hard questions of what we're filling our minds with. And so it's over and over and over and over again that sins that should be put to death by the Spirit are left Dragging on in our life because we don't go back far enough to address what we're thinking about. And asking ourselves if they're filling my mind with desires to both love God and serve others. As the Philippian believers fill their minds with such things, they should then put their faith to work by doing the very things that they've learned, received, heard, and seen in Paul. If you're like me, you may be asked on first reading what the heck eight and nine have in common. And D.A. Carson helps clarify this. He says, we are to emulate Christian leaders who have clearly disciplined their minds. Of course, we have no access to the mind and thoughts of another except through what the mind says and does. Paul removes the opportunity for the Philippians to dismiss the vital role of the discipline of the mind and the role that that plays in the life of believer by pointing them to the truth that what he had lived and taught and spoke of and modeled for the Philippians was a direct result of what he thought about. Paul says this is what Christian moral character and virtue looks like. And there's a payoff at the end of this. Paul says at the end of 9, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Notice the progression From the end of seven to the end of nine. We make a move from the end of seven to the end of nine. The move is from peace guarding your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to realizing that the very God of peace is with you. And that is a monumental shift in understanding God's nearness to you in everyday life. But we have to read it the way Paul wrote it, not the way we want to hear it. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul doesn't say the God of peace will be with you and then go out and practice these things. Paul ties obedience to an awareness of the presence of God in our lives Moises Silva in his commentary says, It is not only the peace of God, but the God of peace himself who will overshadow us with his care. Yet that promise is conditioned by the command to lead obedient lives. Go back to the quote from the beginning of the sermon. Grace does not remove works from your life. Grace removes self-righteousness from your life. And when grace removes self-righteousness, It frees you up to work and to experience the very presence of the God of peace being with you. D.A. Carson, in writing on this chapter of Philippians, the entirety of chapter 4, says, Many of the specific injunctions in this chapter are calculated to foster perseverance. What Paul offers is not simply doctrinal content, though that is important, or simple orders designed to elicit some sort of explicitly Christian behavior but attitudinal commands aimed at fostering whole life, long-lasting commitment to the one true God. Paul's not after a quick fix. Paul's not after the easiest path. Paul's after the persevering path. And it all has to do with the change in our attitude. You go back to Philippians 4, 2, when he entreats, yodia and centique to get to get to get along in the lord. He's asking for a change in attitude that would lead to perseverance. And then for the rest of the verses we covered tonight, he appeals over and over and over again for the Philippians to have a change of attitude that would give them perseverance in their life of faith. And so it is the same for us. Therefore, we must be busy about the work of reconciliation. We must be reasonable. We must pray thankful prayers to offset our anxieties. We must fix our minds on those things that stir our affections and actions towards loving God and others. And we are to put everything we've learned from all of scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and godly influences in our life into practice. Not yesterday. Not tomorrow. Right now. The time for faithful obedience is now. Let's pray.